Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another special history episode of the podcast is the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, Richard Latour. Hello, Richard. Hi, Ward. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back. The fans were screaming (laughs) for it, so we give the people what they want. And also joining us for, this is not the first time you've been on, this is your second time on the show, is Brian O'Rourke, editor at Proceedings Magazine. And also, do you also work with Naval History as well? You're the utility player there. We're all part of the team. We all serve. One One team, team. (laughs) many fights. Well, guys, it's uh, great to see you here on, uh, this is going to be a busy week here around, uh, around the Naval Institute. Richard, what, what can we say about the history conferences coming up? How are preps going for that? Actually, um, there are several history-related events coming up. Uh, the Naval Academy is hosting the uh, McMullen History Symposium, which is in September, uh, I believe the 19th and 20th. I'm going to be going out to uh, the Museum of the Pacific Wars annual symposium which is on September 21st, and later in October, the Naval Institute will be hosting um, its own history conference, which is here at the Academy. That's our biggie, right? That's That's our our big one. And the topic this year is cyber, I think? I believe so, yes. Okay. So that's always something to look forward to very well. Brian, what do you got going on? How are you doing these days? We're constantly cranking out uh, content, working with authors digging up new authors to work with it's uh it's a steady cycle it's a lot of fun and uh starting to finally get some of those junior officers out there to understand you don't have to have stars or birds on your collar to write for proceedings absolutely that's a good trend that we have going on here so we just put to bed the september issue which is our aviation theme issue and this one as we've said many times on the podcast has a uh, top gun 50th anniversary theme to it there's a special center section that's pretty uh, exciting and we're starting to work on our october issue which is our undersea warfare theme so some cool stuff coming up in that one as well yeah a lot of cool stuff um several of our authors are focusing on um lessons from the cold war as you know second fleet stands back up and becomes more than just an administrative thing it really uh has put an emphasis on the fact that we probably need to be better at anti-submarine warfare than we've been in quite some time yeah i mean the focus obviously since 9-11 has not been on that and so with the return to peer conflict as we talk about um this is back in the uh in vogue again yeah it's going to take more than uh a bunch of coasties jumping on Russian subs and banging on the lid saying... That was a great video. Very cool video. (laughs) Open the hatch. Open open the hatch. hatch. That's a good first step, but we need to do more than that. It's a scene from Animal House, right? (laughs) The final parade. So, Richard, who do we got on the phone here? Let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Okay. Our guest today is Dr. Alan D. Zim. Uh, Alan has written two articles for Naval History over the past few years. And not surprisingly, his articles take uh, a highly analytical uh, tact. And that's kind of refreshing after, you know, just straight battle accounts. And and it's not surprising given uh, Dr. Zim's background. Um, he's a retired Navy commander. He earned a PhD. And, and I believe uh, during your naval service, you uh, specialized in operations analysis. Is that correct, Alan? Yes, I got a uh, master's degree uh, from the Naval Postgraduate School in Ops Research, 
And then uh, as my final tour in the Navy, I was the curricular officer of the operations research curriculum. Okay. Well, moving along in your career, uh, you won the 1999 Arleigh Burke Essay Contest uh, sponsored by the Naval Institute. And um, you're a former member of the Strike System Analysis Group at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. And your first article is on, for Naval History, was, I guess, an outgrowth of your book, Attack on Pearl Harbor. It was actually a correction. Because <laughs> after I, at the beginning of my research on uh, Pearl Harbor, I had made a rather wild assumption that uh, Fuchida's testimony that he had tried to signal for a surprise attack, and it was only by a mistake that they did, uh, they sent in the dive bombers first to suppress mm -hmm. enemy air defenses. Mm -hmm. uh, I accepted that until I'd done some additional research in the field and got tied on to, uh, I know someone that uh, you've spoken to before in the past, John Parshall, mm -hmm. who's the author of Shattered Sword. He had gone through and basically determined that there were a lot of problems with Fuchida's testimony. Mm -hmm. And so we went ahead and looked into it a little bit deeper and found out that, uh, no, he had totally misrepresented what happened. Yeah. Okay, well, that article for Naval History was uh, titled Admiral Fushita's Decision. It won you uh, Naval History Author of the Year for 2016. And the article, we'll talk about Admiral Fushita in Pearl Harbor later in the podcast. But what's on tap first is your article in the April 2019 issue of Naval History, which is titled A, ba A Battle Badly Fought which is about uh, Commodore Henry Harwood and the Battle of the River Plate. Now, how, how did you come to write this article? Uh, it was kind of a, I was not intending to research the topic at the beginning, but I had pulled out, uh, I, I do a lot of reading in naval history, of course, and uh, the latest book that had come out on the Battle of the River Plate was uh, The Price of Disobedience by Eric Grove. Eric Grove is a very well-respected uh naval historian, British naval historian. I actually met him when I uh, lectured out at King's College in London uh, about five years ago. And I was interested in, what he, interested in what he had to say. And one of the things included in the book was a track chart of the battle. Yeah. And I was looking at the track chart rather carefully, and I, you have to look at the track chart because unfortunately most of the books on the Battle of the River Platte are mostly on the Graf Space campaign rather than actually on the battle. You know, I think um, Eric had about 10 pages on the battle and some of the other books, like for instance, uh, Richard Woodman's book was like three pages. David Miller's book was about five pages on it. So I was looking at the uh, chart very carefully and about three minutes after the firing started, the chart shows a 90-degree left turn made by the Crofts Bay, and then about six minutes after that, a 90-degree right turn. And that made absolutely no sense tactically. And all the various authors had come through with various explanations, saying things like, oh, it was there to avoid torpedoes and things like that. Well, Langsdorf was a torpedo specialist. The range at the time was over 18,000 yards. There's no way that was a maneuver to avoid torpedoes. Mm -hmm. Now, 
So the, the, what was required then is I needed to do two things. One is I like to find out what the actual track chart from the German perspective was. And the other one is to find out what exactly generated the track chart for the British side. Now, unfortunately, on the German side, <clears throat> when Langsdorf was interned and he decided to scuttle the Graf Spey, and, and uh, Langs his Langs navigator... I'm sorry? Langsdorf was the uh, captain of the Admiral Graf Spey. Right. Langsdorf was the commanding officer. And he decided, as you know, he was. they were interned, and then he was going to go ahead and scuttle the Graf Spey. And he passed the word to his crew, and his navigator, in a fit of enthusiasm for security, decided to burn all the logs and all the records, all the written records of the battle. So all, the, all our immediate first first-person documents were lost, but the Germans eventually, uh, they were not interned in Argentina. They went ahead and made it through various uh, uh, indirect means back to Germany, and when they got to Germany, I'm sure they were stood up against the, the wall by Admiral Rader, who was the commander-in-chief of the German uh, Navy, and asked what the heck happened. So they mm -hmm. wrote a report, and that report ended up being... Uh, captured by the Allies at the end of the war, was placed in the British archives, uh, and it was under a security lock. It was considered uh, classified at the time. When it was finally declassified, you pulled out their track chart, and you find out that there wasn't two 90-degree turns. There was one 45-degree turn. Mm -hmm. Now, given my engineering background, it would seem fairly obvious to me exactly what happened. The track chart was generated by the Admiralty Fire Control Table, which is like a super dead reckoning trace. If you've been at sea, you've, you know, you've worked with that dead reckoning traces a lot before. And what happened is at 18,000 yards, the ships haul down. Uh, your target is you're, you're taking ranges and bearings just on the mast. There's no way you can really tell what their course of speed. So the Admiral Fire Control Table is comp, is computing a solution for that. Well, just like if you've got a generator and all of a sudden you put a load on it, and it's going to compensate, and it's going to overshoot high and then overshoot low and finally oscillate until it gets down to the exact load on the generator. Well, that's exactly what the Admiral Fire Control Table did. It overshot left and then overshot right, and mm -hmm. then finally settled down on the proper course and speed based on the uh, data that was given. Mm -hmm. So basically the problem I saw at that time was that most of the historical results were, his the histories were being written by historians who were very good on personal relationships and command relationships and things like that, but they didn't really understand tactical employment of ships, gunfire com fire control computers, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into the problem a little bit more. When I got to the archives at Kew, I pulled out a document that was the British formal report uh, on the Battle of the River Platte. Oddly enough, at least to American view, uh, visitors, it was a report that was published, and it was put out in a little brochure. I refer to it in the article as the Tuppence Broadsheet, which is exactly what it was. And it was an incredible piece of propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it opened up with a quotation from uh, Churchill, and you could tell it's it's the obvious Churchill rhetoric, which is, you know, beautiful language. 
Uh, the first paragraph runs something like this. In this somber, dark winter, the brilliant action of the River Platte came like a flash of light and color on the scene, <laughs> carrying with it an encouragement to all those who are fighting. You know, basically, this was typical Churchill. If you've read any of his histories, the rhetoric is beautiful, but the facts tend to be a little slim. <laughs> and in in that uh, document, there was all sorts of comments, like, you know, the British were firing very rapidly, and their accuracy was fantastic, and the Germans found the gunfire too hot and turned away. Well, you know, I'm, I'm an analyst, and I'd like to know how many hits were scored, what was the, you know, hit mm -hmm. percentage, and what exactly caused Langsdorf mm -hmm. to decide to turn away, especially under the consideration that the Tuppence broadsheet made out like the British force was totally, you know, the underdog, mm -hmm. that they were totally outranked and outmatched by the Groff Spey. Mm -hmm. Now, one, you've got to have a way to be able to determine this, and one of the best ways to determine this is going to the two war colleges, the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, and the War College at um, the Royal Naval College, and how did they go about analyzing this type of engagement? Did they actually, did naval officers actually believe that the three British ships that were firing, two light cruisers and heavy cruiser, against a kind of a souped up heavy cruiser in the Groff Bay, were they the underdogs? I've been working at the U.S. Naval War College for, oh gosh, about four decades now, working with their fire effect system, their maneuver roles. If you ever want to find out what the true opinion of naval officers were about various tactical issues, you go to the wargaming rules. Because, mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of individuals. Like, uh, I was, I've been working on uh, the development of carrier aviation. You can find all sorts of quotes where uh, even the chief of naval operations, Admiral Stanley, said that, oh, aircraft will never be any good. They're worthless. They're just playthings. You know, and is that the official Navy opinion, or is it just one guy that's out of sorts? Well, if you go to the wargaming rules, you find out what the official Navy opinion was. And, oh, by the way, the Navy opinion of of aircraft between the wars was extremely good. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, the thing I've actually done the calculations, you found out that uh, the hit rate for bom dive bombers in the wargaming rules almost exactly matches the hit rate actually established in the first two years in the Pacific War. So that's mm -hmm. really fascinating. So anyway, they have something called a fire effect system. And you take the values of all the various ships at, all, at the various ranges which they can engage, and the fire effect system will tell you which one is going to be relatively stronger. And when you go to the Naval War College fire effect systems, you find out that they compute that the British force outgunned the German, for German ship by a factor of three to five. Mm -hmm. Three to five times wow. more powerful. When you go to the British rules, which is CB3011, as I referred to in the books, which is the reference number it was carried under, CB3011 said the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a difference between the two, the difference being that the British expected to get many more hits at long range, while the Americans favored uh, hits at shorter range, which mm -hmm. kind of dictated how the battle went. When you look at the Tuppence broadsheet, you find out that it is a piece of propaganda. And why is that 
Why was that propaganda necessary? Churchill was an absolutely miserable first uh, Lord of the Admiralty. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you read Roskill's book, there's a book out that Captain Roskill wrote after the war called uh, Churchill and the Admirals. And basically, Churchill had extremely strange hours. He would stay up until 3 or 4 in the morning and then sleep until noon. But when he was up at 3 o'clock in the morning, he would go in to the Admiralty Operations Center, read the message traffic, and start issuing orders. And then the admiral, whose duty it was, would come in at 6 or 7 in the morning, read all of these uh, messages that Churchill had given out and have to start sending out mm-hmm. messages saying basically disregard my last. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so such a constant problem that the British used to call it the midnight follies when Churchill would come in mm-hmm. and start issuing orders. Uh, he had sent out, for example, armed merchant cruisers to intercept uh, returning uh, German merchant ships that were trying to get into the North Sea. Well, one of them, the 17,000-ton Raul Pindi, got caught by Scharnhorst and Neisnau, which were two battle cruisers, and sunk with almost total loss of life. He sent the aircraft carrier Courageous out to hunt submarines, which is, you know, incredible. That's like, well, <laughs> it's just it's sending out a huge major capital ship out to try and swat flies. And uh, the uh, the uh, ship managed managed to get itself sunk by a U-boat. That it was one of the U-boats it was hunting. And then there was the loss of the uh, Royal Oak in Scapa Flow when the German submarine penetrated that. And then also, which they didn't know at the time, but was we learned afterwards, the Germans were sending destroyers off the coast of the UK mm-hmm. and dropping mines. The British didn't even know about it. And Churchill obviously was not uh, protecting against that. So he was in serious political trouble after all of these situations happening. Mm-hmm. You know, basically he was mismanaging it as another another um, kind of odd sea story. When Churchill came back to the Admiralty, a message was put out saying Winnie is back. Winston is back. And all the histories have said, oh, the British Navy loved him so much that they sent this out in saying, announcing the news back, isn't this a good thing? Well, the story that it was a good thing emanated from one of his relatives, which was Lord Montbatten, who was a captain at the time and at sea. And he put, when he was writing his history, he said, oh, yes, we heard that Winston was back and the ship's company cheered. Well, he's the only person who reported that. All of the others basically saw the thing and said, Winston is back, oh good? No, Winston is back, oh God. (laughs) So the fleet itself was not real happy to see Winston Churchill back, his first Lord of the Admiralty. And even after the Battle of the River Platte, he managed to box up the invasion of Norway, sending out again uh, messages to the British fleet units, sending them hither and yon so they couldn't respond properly to it. So basically, the Tuppence broadsheet was a piece of propaganda, and you started looking at it in more detail, and you trying to find out, well, what were they trying to cover up? Well, mm-hmm. if the British force was three to five times more powerful than the Graf's Bay, they should have sunk the Graf's Bay. They should have destroyed it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the British commander, uh, Captain Henry Harwood, 
Commodore Henry Hardware at the time, had put out in his orders, his standing orders to the fleet, is if we find the Groff's Bay, whether it's day or night, you are to engage immediately and you are to stay within decisive range. Decisive means you're going to destroy or sink the other ship. And obviously he did not destroy or sink the Groff's Bay. He tried mm-hmm. to cover it up later in a letter saying, oh, my intention was only to lame him. Somebody else can come and sink him, which mm-hmm. was not uh, a very smart thing to do because the other ships were three and four days out and could not respond immediately. So the bottom line was that when you look through all the various data that's available and you look through the actual course of the action, how he fought it, it was obvious he was trying for a decisive result and he did not get a decisive result. The idea that the British were the underdogs is not correct. This was a battle that was badly fought. So so during the battle, it was one British heavy cruiser and two light cruisers versus the Graf Spey. And can, yes. can you just briefly describe the Graf Spey? Graf Spey was a ship that was do- designed to be faster than anything that could kill it and could kill anything that was faster. Uh, it was originally designed, well, there's a lot of debate on how it was designed. The uh, Some uh, sources in Germany say it was designed to go uh, and fight in the Baltic against the Russians, but the ship had diesel engines and had a, a unrefueled range of over 10,000 miles, which is not something you need in the Baltic. Uh, but it ended up, it was a ship with six uh, 11-inch guns with a very good fire control system and radar fire control on it. Mm-hmm. So these are guns that are going to de- be enable it to punch through armor. Um, mm-hmm. And so it could engage British battle cruisers or heavy cruisers and have a fairly good chance of uh, coming out of it well. It had mm-hmm. diesel engines, as I said, about 26 knots, which means it was under a speed a speed disadvantage with amongst the uh, uh compared to the british cruisers so the british cruisers having at the time the the Graf Spey had been out for like 5 months 6 months at sea her bottom was horrible uh, uh infested with weed uh one of the things that uh, a little side note is that the uh, one of the leading things the united states navy had was a bottom paint that did not get weed infested, and it kept kept the ships from uh, being slowed down by having uh, a lot of seaweed growing out of their bottoms. Uh, probably one of the things next to uh, next to radar that was decisive in the Second World War. Um, but the point is that uh, the British had at the time about a nine knot speed advantage because the uh, engines on the Croft Bay needed to be overhauled very badly. Uh, there were actually cracks in some of the uh, diesel cylinder heads. And consequently, the British could choose where to fight from. And they chose to fight from a range that was depicted by the rules of CB-3011. Now, Harwood had been an instructor at the Royal Naval College, and he was considered to be an expert and lectured on the topic of fighting fighting, uh, pocket battleships. And when you look at the rules and you do the analysis, you find out that what he should do to win according to the rules was run his heavy cruiser in to decisive range, uh, into around 10,000 yards, and hope to get a magazine hit, 
but he'd keep his light cruisers outside of about 15,000 yards so they could employ something called concentration fire, which would allow, it was a technique for combining the fire of two or more ships so that it would make it easier to spot the shells. And the British believed they could get 25% more hits in that method than using independent fire. And then they would split the two forces using something called flank marking. Flank marking is when, when you're spotting your own shells, uh, you can tell whether they're over or short based upon whether the shell splash is cut off at the bottom. Uh, but you can't tell how far, especially when you're talking about engagements that are 15 to 20,000 yards where the target is hull down. So what the British did when they split the two forces apart was the ship at a different angle could tell exactly how far over a short the shells would land and could radio that information back to the commanding officer of the ship, uh, ships that were firing. Unfortunately, both of those techniques were better in practice than they were in actual battle, and uh, they ended up causing a lot of confusion. They did not score hits very well. They were not very accurate, and to the British credit, when they did the next major uh, surface-to-surface action, which was when they tracked down the two uh, British battleships, tracked down the Bismarck, uh, they did not use flank marking, and they did not use concentration fire. So that that is kind of the point where you get you find out that the British had not succeeded in what they were trying to do, which was to attain a decisive victory over the Grafs Bay. So, Alan, what? Why were these ships off the coast of South America? I mean, when you think of battles in World War II, you don't generally think about South America. What What was the the strategic reason this battle took place where it did? Uh, Grafs Bay. And uh, one of the other, I think is Deutschland, uh, another one of the pocket battleships, were sent to sea several months before the war started. And they were to get lost in the North Atlantic, and they were there for commerce raiding. Uh, the British, or the Germans, had a great deal of, uh, of affinity towards uh, using their ships in a commerce raiding role, uh, both as independent raiders. Uh, they did it in World War One. With some success, they themselves, one of the major reasons why they lost the war was because of the British blockade, and, uh, so that a lot of the German people were actually hungry in the war, and that caused a loss of morale and contributed to the end of the war. So uh, the British, or the, excuse me, the Germans sent their ships out to sea. They got lost. They were told not, when the war started, they were told not to engage the British, uh, and uh, consequently, the reason for that was that Hitler was hoping that he could get a uh, some type of a negotiated peace with uh, Great Britain. And when that did not happen, he decided to put additional pressure on the British to turn them loose. Now, the interesting thing is when you go into the British archives and you look at their interwar documents, they were deathly afraid of surface raiders, of ships going after their uh, their trade routes. They were much less afraid of the U-boat. Uh, mm. I found this to be very odd, but they had a very uh, inflated idea of what ASDIC, what we called sonar, could do to the uh, submarine threat. They felt that essentially submarines were not going to be a serious problem as they were in World War One, but they were concerned about the uh, uh, surface raiders. So Langsdorff is up in the North Atlantic. He... Uh, 
wasn't real happy up there because there's a lot of traffic. He's going to get uh, uh, radio. He's going to get end up getting his position broadcast by a ship at some point. He wanted to get lost while still causing losses to the British trade. So we went down to south uh, the South Atlantic. He patrolled down there and sank a number of ships. He actually went around uh, the Cape of Good Hope and dipped into the Indian Ocean and attacked down there also uh, and was uh, having a great deal of success until finally he got to the point where his engines needed overhaul so badly he was going to uh, return to Germany. And the first thing he wanted to do, though, was to get off the River Platte off the estuary there because there was a large amount of traffic going with uh, shipping uh, essentially Argentinian beef uh, to uh, Great Britain, which, of course, needed imports of food to be able to survive itself. And by an excellent piece of analysis, uh, Henry Hardwood, Commodore Harwood, uh, guessed correctly that uh, – that, that was an expected thing that Groff's Bay would do, and as a consequence, they met off the River Platte. So, Alan, in addition to the analysis that you did of you know, flank marking and how the tactics that the British had theorized about were employed and worked and didn't work and things and the, um, the track chart and things like that, it, you go someplace in your analysis that I haven't seen a lot, uh, which is you start asking or uh, hypothesizing about how Harwood made some of the errors you ascribed to him. You get into actually cognitive biases and things like that. What led you to that sort of uh, approach to analyzing Harwood in this battle? Um, when I was doing my doctoral work, uh, part of my class work and some of my dissertation were, was on decision-making, on what's called cognitive biases, in other words, the human brain has to make decisions quickly, given limited amounts of information, and it, it has in itself a number of shortcuts to be able to get to these decisions quickly. Now, these decisions are really good if you're a caveman and you hear a snarl outside your cave and you can instantly determine that it's a saber-toothed tiger that's hungry. Uh, but when you're talking about more complex problems that hu require huge amounts of data to determine, for example, a commanding officer in a battle, then you have to go through and be aware of these cognitive biases so that you can overcome them. Now, that was, as a matter of fact, that was the topic of that Arleigh Burke uh, essay that I wrote that, uh, that was so generously honored. Uh, basically, one of the situations to give you a very a very clear-cut example the vincennes when it shot down the iranian uh air transport aircraft airliner the commanding officer had all the information that he needed to be able to go through and determine that this was going to be a uh, uh an airliner and he shouldn't fire on it but by his cognitive biases that were established in there, basically several of them that basically said, you see what you expect to see, and the, the, the brain processes it in that way, that he was led to the decision to go ahead and fire the missile and shoot the aircraft down. You see lots of other examples of this in warfare. 
Um, my favorite is the Battle of the River Somme, uh, <laughs> River Somme, I'm sorry, the Battle of the Somme, uh, in World War One in France. Um, the British expected that their troops were going to just walk across no man's land because they had been shelling the German trenches for, for days. Well, when they started going across and when they did the attack across no man's land, battalions, whole battalions were getting slaughtered, with 50 to 70 percent casualties. A few of them actually reached the enemy lines and made it across. Now, when they did the investigation at headquarters and said uh, to the headquarters people that were processing all the incoming reports, and they asked them, here are all these battalions being slaughtered. Uh, why didn't you stop the attack? They came back and said, we never heard any reports that they were being slaughtered, even though that the reports were in and logged. And basically what happens is in that, in that particular cognitive bias, the brain accepts thing, reports that it accepts and rejects data that it doesn't make sense. And according to them, it didn't make sense. And so their brain didn't even register it. So this is the type of thing that when I was looking at, at Harwood and looking at all of the individual decisions that he made, it came to me as what, what information was he getting? What was he basing his decisions on? And why did he make the particular decisions that he did? And in particular, for example, CB3011 tells him he's going to score a lot of hits outside 15,000 yards. He didn't score hardly any. I think uh, Bill Jurens, who did a companion article on the damage to uh, the Groffs Bay, uh, computed it was like four-tenths of a percent hits, four hits in the first uh, 35 or 40 minutes of firing where they expended thousands of rounds. But Harwood was under the belief that he was hitting because his brain was actually seeing what he expected to see. And it wasn't until over 50 minutes of exchanging fire when he could see absolutely no change in the status on the Groff Spay, no reduction in speed, no reduction in firepower. And the fact that, that CB3011, which he undoubtedly used uh, at the War College when he was giving his lectures on tactics to fight uh, pocket battleships, those rules would have had him destroying the Groff Spay in about 19 minutes. So here he's gone 50 minutes Nothing's happened. Finally, he's had to get rid of that uh, bias. He's had to come to the epiphany that something's wrong, and he decided to close to decisive range. So you can go through the battle, and at each one of the decision points that you see, that, that you can look at the data that he had and get an idea of why he made the decisions he made based on his cognitive um, biases. Alan, we've got about 10 minutes left, so I'd now like to transition to your other uh, earlier article for Naval History, uh, Commander Fushida's Decision. As we mentioned before, John Parshall has, has written a lot about Commander Fushida, and he also uh, discussed Commander Fushida in an earlier Proceedings podcast, that's episode 85. So can you just very concisely uh, talk about Commander Fushida leading that first wave attackers uh, against Pearl Harbor and the decision he made that resulted in what you claim is a less successful attack than it could have been. When Fushida came in, uh, he's leading the first wave of the attack. He's got dive bombers 
which are assigned to um, hit airfields, hit Fort Island Airfield and Hickam Airfield and, uh, and Wheeler. And he's got torpedo bombers that are supposed to go in and attack primarily. Most of the weight of the attack was uh, scheduled against the battleships, or excuse me, against the aircraft carriers on a per-ship mm-hmm. basis, and then the rest against the battleships. Uh, the idea of how he was going to communicate whether he was going to send the dive bombers in first or the torpedo bombers in first is was rather bizarre. They decided to use flares. Now, the aircraft had just been installed with radios, but the radios themselves were exceptionally poor quality. Their installation was very, very bad. They were they were not grounded, for instance, in the aircraft. So as static electricity built up on the fuselage of the aircraft as it went through the air, uh, it would reach a certain point and then it would explode into the radio. <laughs> into the radio. <laughs> so if you had if you were a pilot with the earphones on, about every fifteen to twenty seconds you'd hear a blast of static in oh your ears. So that that evidently they decided not to use radars or radios at all in the attack and decided to use flares. And Fuchida was supposed to fire one flare if it was going to be a surprise attack and two flares if it was going to be uh, an opposed attack. And the difference being is that if it was an opposed attack, he'd send the dive bombers in first. If it was a surprise attack, he would send the torpedo bombers in first. And the reason for that is because the torpedo bombers are attacking what the aviators like to say is low and slow. They're a steady target. They're not maneuvering. They're coming in very slow, and they'd be very vulnerable to any aircraft fire. Now, if you had surprise, you want the dive bomb or the torpedo bombers to go in first because then they can get their attacks in before the any aircraft wakes up. Uh, if it's opposed, you want the dive bombers to go in first and perhaps dis, you know dispose of some of those uh, any aircraft fire. Well. Fujita claimed that he fired one flare, looked around, didn't see his fighters reacting the way he uh, wanted to, so he fired a second flare, meaning that it was only a single flare fired twice, but instead he claimed that the aircraft all said that was the second flare of a two-flare warning, and so they went in with the dive bombers first. And as a result of the dive bombers arriving about three to six minutes before the torpedo bombers. It did indeed wake up the American air defenses. As a result, about the last, I think, five of the last seven torpedo bombers to attack were shot down. Now, why is this wrong? At the end of the war, uh, the United States sent in something called the Naval Technical Mission Japan to go in and and get as much information about um, Japanese weapons and armament and ships, and they also interviewed many of the commanders uh, to find out what they were thinking about in the various battles. They interviewed Fuchida. Fuchida at the time, this is right after the war ended, said they asked him how far apart were the two flares, and he said about 30 seconds. Now, this kind of raised a flag in my mind. If I fire one flare... And then I have to look around and wait to see whether or not my sh- my aircraft are going to respond to a one-flare attack. How long am I going to wait to see if they're going to do the- that maneuver? Uh, 
Now, if I'm in, the, for instance, the fighter pilot who's in charge of the fighter squadron, they didn't have radios, which means he's got to get the attention of his uh, following uh, aircraft in his formation. He's got to give them a hand wave or a signal to go through and that, he, that he's going to be maneuvering and he's going to execute that maneuver. Now, how long is that going to take? That's probably, I would probably wait three to five minutes to find out whether he's going to, you know, respond to the single flare. But when you go through and look at a 30-second interval, well, that's about how long the time it took for you to pop out the expended flare from your flare gun, pull another one out, load the flare gun, open the canopy hatch again, and then fire the second flare. So it seemed very much made sense to me that he was actually firing a two-flare signal. Mm-hmm. Plus, when you go and look at you know, what John Pershala said before, that the, uh, the Japanese didn't have a whole lot of respect for Fujita. You know, towards the end of the war, he was made like an administrative commander of an outlying airfield in, in uh, around Tokyo, which considering he's supposed to be this great war hero and, and the fact that the Japanese had lost so many people that uh, and lost so many of their frontline commanders, why are they putting him in the second line command like that? But in any event, what happened is he's gone, you know, when you go through and look at later charts, track charts that were actually generated by other Japanese pilots who were at Pearl Harbor in that first wave, you find out that, you know, Fuchida had claimed that both the dive bombers and the torpedo bombers left at the same time. And it was the dive bomber guy's fault because he should have been hanging back. In fact, those Japanese track charts showed that they, the uh, dive bombers did hang back. And so, excuse me, other way around, the torpedo bombers hung back and the dive bombers went in first. In other words, there was no race to the, to the attack with the dive bombers and torpedo bombers trying to get their attacks in first because of the, the mistaken signal. It was actually done as planned as a no-surprise attack, which Fuchida had misidentified the situation was in and sent the wrong signal out. And then later, years after the war, when Fuchida was coming to the United States and spending a lot of time with Gordon Prang, who wrote At Dawn We Slept, I think he found an opportunity to rehabilitate his reputation a bit by by causing problems with, you know, by essentially saying that the dive bomber, uh, head of the dive bombers, he called him a blockhead, uh, had misinterpreted the situation when it actually was Fuchida. So this is a situation where when you have to take a look at all of the sources of data, the Japanese data as well as the American and more than the testimony of one person to find out what really happened. You know, we've talked a little bit about the, uh, cognitive biases people have. If there's a theme I'm detecting in your work, it's that uh, you like upending conventional wisdom and conventional understanding of events. Uh, is that is that deliberate? Is that do you do you read history looking for that, or do you just stumble across these things and say, I, I bet there's another answer? I think it's a combination of both. I do a lot of reading in history, and some of some of the times it sticks out. It's it's very extreme, and some of the times it doesn't. And I think what I'm going to do here in the very near future is write an article for the proceedings talking about that because mm. I think it is vital 
that as we train our naval commanders out in the field, uh, that they have to be aware of what their cognitive biases are and all the various things that the brain can do to trick you into making wrong decisions. You know, a, a very good example would be uh, you're firing against a radar, uh, against a enemy light cruiser that has its radar on, and you fire some long-range missiles. And about the time when the long-range missiles are scheduled to hit, the radar turns off. Well, that's considered to be a signal that the missiles have hit. While and, and the bias is towards believing that because you are seeing what you expect to see. While in truth, it could be the fact that they're seeing this missile come in, they think it may be a radar homer, so they turn off their radars and fire chaff. You know, so recognizing what your biases are is extremely important for uh, modern naval commanders, and, and I think it's something that ought to be included in our curriculum. So our guest has been Dr. Alan Zim. He was named the 2016 Naval History Author of the Year for the article we've been talking about here, Commander Fushida's Decision. And we also were talking about an article that is in the August issue of Naval History Magazine called A Battle Badly Fought. Alan, thanks a lot for being on the Proceedings Podcast today. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll see everybody next time. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.